Which 2000s era cars are going to be the next hot drift car? Are computers the correct way to judge professional drifting? And we discuss nostalgic drift media all ahead on episode 3 of Battle Damage Drift Pod. Hello and welcome to Battle Damage Podcast, your super rad and super drifty podcast devoted to the sideways sport we all love, coming to you not once, but twice a month. I am your host, Matthew, joined by my co-host, Ricky. Ricky, tell the people hello. Hello, listeners. I'm Ricky. Since everybody is, of course, joining us for our third episode now, and the pro season hasn't had another round since our last one today... We are going to dive in uh, to something a little bit more unique, switch up the tone a little bit of the podcast. Uh, So this was an idea I kind of had. I think Ricky kind of liked it too. This is probably at least going to be a two-part podcast for us, if not three parts. And uh, the theme of this podcast today is going to be Japan versus USA. And we're going to kind of talk about the comparison of the scenes and see where that goes. And then uh, again, of course, we'll have a second part podcast covering more of that particular thing. And we plan to do more countries in the future or continents in the future at the very least, uh, like Europe and maybe even Australia versus the United States and kind of compare them. But for today's, let's roll into the intro. And I think this is going to be kind of a fun question. I'm looking forward to this one. So uh, our opening question is, of course, going to be what 2000 to 2010 car will become the next drift chassis. Now, the rules of this, like I already told Ricky, is I uh, cannot be a 350Z because that's too obvious and people already use those. And it has to have been made for at least half of the decade. So at least five years of production between 2000 and 2010. Ricky, I'm going to let you take the lead on this one. Okay. I didn't check necessarily the the five-year rule thing we're talking about where it was made at least half that time. Um, so fact checkers do your job on that. Um, I'm kind of really liking as, as my most likely pick to replace the S chassis, which is kind of the, the background of the question, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, more or less with, with nineties drift cars kind of being rare and rare. Right. What right. can being we take bought and destroyed, the next right. decade? Um, I'm thinking the the Genesis Coupe is going to be a a cheap a cheap option with with everything that you want in a drift car on a budget. You know, you the the two liter makes two hundred some horsepower. The the three liter makes three hundred some horsepower. That's that's like a perfect starting platform for any drift car, and it'll be an even better car to drift and drive daily because it has modern things like nice radios and power windows and all that cool stuff you know sure hey i actually had a genesis that i drove as a daily and slid it a few times and uh i had the the 2.0 turbo mine was a 2011 model and uh, it was fine i mean i didn't hate it it's heavy but i didn't hate it i think that's a pretty i think that's a pretty good it's a pretty good suggestion. My only thing is I am curious on, I can't remember when the Genesis was made. I'm going to look this up really quick. Oh, 
fact checker live on hand. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so well, 2008. So that's a little under the five year rule, but it's still within oh, the okay. decade. So fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Fair enough. I still think it's All not right. bad. All right. Um, there, there's always the Miata, which is there's always going to be people who hate the that's Miata, great. Great and then there's there's going to be people who are going to love Miatas. That that that's always a, a car that's like love and hate chassis. But that's the the little bit when they started getting a little bit bigger, it's a little bit better of a car for for what we're doing with them. Um, so that was the next one on my list. That's a great. What suggestion. I would personally like to see more of is the Mazda RX-8. Um, I know there's a lot of issues with, with, with chassis. And I, I mean, anybody who's driven a Mazda RX-8 like has a thousand things that they complain about. But I think if you motor swap, you know, there, there, there's a little bit more potential there for a budget drift car um, than a lot of the other options of the year. And, and this is all excluding USDM cars. I, I have a whole list of the other ones and they haven't changed, you know, you Charger, Camaro, Mustang, all that kind of stuff. Uh, outside of the U.S. cars is what I'm talking about here. But I, I think the Mazda RX-8 is I, – I wish I saw it more. I, I don't know if we will, if it's not already now out there, because they're, they're really cheap to buy now. They are. Yeah. So Very cheap. Yeah, and then I have a – well, I don't want to tell my whole list right out of the gate. I'm going to let you, let you say a couple. What do you got? Okay. All right. There was a lot of hype uh, before we started recording just for the, for the record. So, so I really want to hear what Matthew has to say on this. All right, man. So mine pretty much makes the five-year rule like, like I mean, it doesn't have to be concrete, but let's just say like five years. I think I think my one car was made for five years in this particular model. All right. So, um, I I actually I think my number one that I'm most interested in and that I would tempt myself with buying is the Lexus IS two fifty. So not, not, yeah. So four doors. All right. It's four door. Um, and it's not the IS 300, which everybody always goes right to the Altez or the IS 300, but the next generation, the four doors, the current, basically the, not the current iteration, but what, what design wise is similar to the current iteration in Japan, the, there's people that have already started to drift those and mod them. So there's a few more parts coming. Uh, Toyota motor seems to be, fairly good in those particular cars. I mean, people have turboed them. Um, they tend to run. Okay. Can get decent horsepower, decent, uh, torque. And I think it makes some sense. And that one's a little bit off the beaten path. The other thing I like about it is it is offered in a manual. So it's rare, it's rare, but it is offered in a six speed manual factory, which is kind of the issue with some of the other older Toyotas and Lexuses like the SC 300, for example, and is weak transmission options and even if you do get manual transmissions like in the is's they're not really great with horsepower they tend to be kind of glass transmissions and notably with problems and then toyota transmissions are expensive i haven't really yeah. looked into those particular models like the 2005 or 2006 plus is's like i'm talking about uh, but i yeah. would imagine with more r d and newer models you probably don't have quite the issue those transmission as you would you stole my thunder on number two because the rx8 would have been my decision i've driven rx8 i love the rx8 actually i'm one of the few weirdos who likes the rx8 a lot nice style wise i think with a little bit of exterior upgrades like arrow the rx8 looks tremendous it's a great looking car 
Uh, so that would be my number two. So you pretty much like okay. took, took that right away. And then I think the GS 300, I didn't look this up a minute ago and I should have, I think the GS 300 was made for uh, five years during that particular period okay. as well. And I'm a huge fan of those. The transmission is a main issue because I didn't offer it a manual. Right. That I, I was going to comment. Earlier. Okay. So I'm glad I stopped when I did, because the next one I was going to say was, was the IS 250. <laughs> um, uh, super cool chassis looks great pretty much no matter what no matter what you do to it but like you said transmission options just kind of suck um you know you can always do the 350 the uh, cdo9 but 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 that's that's expensive in in the long run when you're looking at what you can do with the car that's a that's an expensive setup there Um, on on a bus the 250 does come it does have like i said a six-speed manual um they're just rare there's not many right 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 yeah Um, i'm sorry i'm talking about the uh, sc the SC options and sure, so the SC 300 sure. and 400. Well, with the SC 400, you have the the one UZ, which is a a a good engine for for a basic budget drift car, but again, only available in automatic. Right. I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, and there's a bunch of BMW E46s out there just waiting to get thrashed on, but I I will never ever condone um abusing a german car because they're just so expensive to do anything to i don't know i I just i i i've got to work on them and i i hate it so that that that's up to the individual i mean if you guys want to beat up on bmws and run the old old school chelsea nofa stuff have at it um i think everybody should 5-0 swap an e36 but i think that's outside of our our 2000 2010 so i'm getting off topic here all right. What about like freak show cars? Do you have anything that's weird that's like, like doesn't make sense to the entire thing at all, but would be cool to see if it did happen? Kind of Man. like you see some of those dudes drifting Volvo station wagons, like something like that. Something totally weird. You know, I hate that so much that I don't. You know, like, <laughs> I have I have yeah. so, I have such a specific <laughs> view of what I think drifting should be that i oh my goodness. you're the biggest purist i've ever met it, i love it i love it <laughs> it's difficult for me to ever want to see something like a volvo drifting and especially a volvo <laughs> station wagon i can't get behind it now i get a kick out of the guys in japan that drift like the k-vans i think that's absolutely hilarious um, but that's still being a purist so that doesn't count <laughs> you, you can't list that as like when when you're like but i like this that that's still jdm pure purism yeah I, you know i think for, <laughs> for me it's the out of my comfort zone the only thing that i could even get close to and it's not really out of my comfort zone and actually maybe in my top five replacement cars would be the 2000s mm-hmm. gto rebirth it's sporty enough looking it oh. doesn't kind of have the typical like rectangular like American lines and Mustangs and Camaros do. It's kind of like, Oh, so it's not a real GTO. That's what you mean. Because it isn't a real GTO. GTO. It's not a real GTO, (laughs) but it does come of course with your favorite motor. And um, it also is sporty enough. I don't think I would want one, at least not for a drift car, maybe for like a daily, Uh, but I could get behind those. I mean, you've seen people drift them anyway. It's not like it's uh, something that we don't see, but, that would be where I would kind of go if I were going for like a not your normal like Mustang answer for like a USDM car. I would probably go there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a really good one that I that I forgot about. Um, I I have seen those drift. It's really cool. I mean, like you said, LS LS one and LS two cars. You can't really go wrong with any of those options. That they're, they're always gonna be good budget drift cars. 
So like I said, like a really weird one that I just want to throw out there just to kind of, you know, get under people's skin. Wouldn't it be cool if like you could see a Porsche Boxster drifting? Yeah, that would be super cool. <laughs> no, okay, so Porsche Boxsters are are they're getting cheap in price. You know, you, you, you can get some of those for like less than five grand. I, I, get, I get where and, you're going, logically. <laughs> I get where you're going. Uh, right. I do think they're cool dailies. I do think they're cool dailies. Uh, <laughs> I don't think they're cool at all. Okay, I, I just think it would be cool to see one on the racetrack. Fair enough, man. <laughs> I don't know, dude. Boxers. On, see those on the bank somewhere? Like, that's a cool idea. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, well, it was a 911, but that's what uh, Tyler McQuarrie drove. I mean, I think, wasn't it like, who was it when he was versing that he almost like killed in that car? He like ramped up the side of the car and almost like, I swear he almost killed somebody. I can't remember who it is. Tyler McQuarrie's I- a long time ago. Baby Farm? Yeah, you remember Baby Farm? Like he's got like 11 kids or something. I can't remember the incident you're talking about, though. It, it was, yeah, it was a Formula D event. I think it was him. It could have been when he was in the Camaro, for all I know. Maybe not even the Porsche. It may have been the Camaro. Okay. But either way, <laughs> like, he, like, ramped up on somebody's car. Or somebody ramped up on his. I remember it being, like, one of the first times we ever saw that. And then Von Gitten, like, tried to make it a contest and started to do it, okay. like, more often. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so – I yeah, I mean, it, I get where you're going. It's it's one of those right. things. I just tend to think, you know, solely JDM. You know that. It's not like I yeah. hide it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and now everybody else knows. So, okay. So when you're talking about the SC, I actually, I'm, I'm trying to look this up. I think they actually did make the SC in like, again, very rare manual transmission. Mm-hmm. But if I recall, it's like kind of a suck transmission. Yeah. So um, it really doesn't matter because it's like that glass like, Toyota <laughs> yeah manual that they have in a lot of those cars similar to the is 300 in the late 90s and early 2000s it's like a very small percentage made with the manual so most people swap r154 but then you're you're like you're up in like nine thousand dollars by the time yeah. you add like uh any j motor plus the uh super six speed you're at so much money that's what kills those toyotas right once you get it drivable and then you start doing power mods and all that kind of stuff it's you're just the, the the price has just grown when you could have just bought something that's already capable, ready to go. Yeah, I definitely think for me in the future, I'm going to probably look at the IS250s. I do think that I could see myself owning one Yeah, uh, to give it a shot. Yeah, as long as parts continue to stay available and it doesn't have to stay slow. I don't know. I, I, I feel like I see you more in a Porsche, man, specifically the Boxster. And it has to be a silver one. I don't want you to have a nice color. It, it needs to be silver like all the other ones. You know, it's a shame that this podcast is going to end on the third episode. But we're <laughs> starting to get... <laughs> It's better if the podcast ends than our friendship. So it's... <laughs> Triple crown and down. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We'll be back for a fourth episode in two weeks. All right. <laughs> So, all right, man. So look, Hey, let me, let me, let's go off this. So I just told you, I think what is the most likely that I would buy. And you gave me your list. Let's say five years down the road, S chassis are selling for $90,000. Now you can buy Ferraris cheaper than them. Uh, thanks to drift tax <laughs> and you freaking millennials that continue to jack up the price of these cars. Like they're a freaking Ferrari. We told you in episode um, one, we're coming for you. Yeah. That, there's there's going to be, there's going to be a we whole podcast that. like that. We're probably going to get shut down when we do that podcast, but it's going to be brutal. 
And, that's how um, I want to go. That's, <laughs> that's so, how we're going out. So if you had to choose one of these kind of like off the beaten path ones, where are you going, man? Something off the beaten path for, okay. It can, so be, on, what, it can what, be on your list. It can be on your list, but just okay. which is the most likely you you're mm-hmm. like, Hey man, I want to do something different than the Mustang now. S chassis costs way too much. I already money. want to do something different than the Mustang just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> S chassis got way um, too much money. RX sevens are way too much money. And then also way too much maintenance. Uh, so where are you going? You going to RX eight? Um, absolutely not. No, no. I was entertaining you earlier when you said they look good. I disagree. Um, it is an abomination of a vehicle. I like them. Uh, <laughs> I'm a weirdo, but I like them. I, okay. So I like, I've always liked the IS two fifties. Always thought it was a, a really good looking car. Um, so, but I don't want to jump on your coattails there no man do uh, it no i don't want to i don't want to specifically right now i do not want to we'll, so. we'll hold hands you're not on my coattails <laughs> man we'll just hold hands together on the is250 <laughs> that's normal I, I i have always liked despite everything i said earlier the beat the um the e46 chassis um the, i mean the first thing i would do is just pull out that giant boat anchor under the hood and get rid of it um i i, I would I would prefer it be like a Prius engine in there than any BMW engine ever. This, this this might be coming off a little strong. I think, yeah, I think (laughs) Prius motor, maybe (laughs) it's an exaggeration from my, from my height. Um, The, the, the E46, E46 is a cool looking car. I've always liked them. The M3s look super cool. Okay. All right. But once you have it, like, there's not much you can do to make it look unique. That's my only thing with the BMWs is they kind of all end up looking the exact same. The BMW hasn't changed their style in 100 years. I swear, I every BMW looks basically like the iteration before it with the slightly rounder panels. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. So what if it had to be JDM? What if it had JDM. to be a Japanese car? Had to be a Japanese car from the 2000, 2010? Yeah, from that era. And, and you, can, you, can, you can disregard the five-year rule on that. If it just made in that decade, I, I went with that decade because we always talk about the nineties cars. So everybody focuses on right. like 89 to 99. So that, that covers your RPS 13, S 13, S 14, S 15, uh, RX sevens, the majority of your RX sevens. I actually think the FC is included in that. Cause I think it went to 91. Uh, and then, um, and that includes of course, like the, uh, even the IS 300, I think first came out like 98. So, so the, or the Alteza or the Soros. So, I mean, that covers so many cars. So, the 2000 decade from 00 to 10 made in there. It doesn't have to be five years, but made within that region. Um, what, what's the uh, time frame with the S 2000? Are, are, are we in that era there? I, I think it was made in 2000 actually. Okay. Uh, because I always thought the name was kind of funny because it's like S 2000. I think it was made around the 2000. So you could go there. Okay. Yeah. I think I could do an S 2000. That freaking speed sensitive steering. You gotta rip that crap out, figure something different out. But I might. They're cool though. Just They're run, cool. I'll run manual steering. Yeah, you got you got to do something different. That speed sensor steering is killer yeah. in that crap for driving. Well, you know, I've owned an S chassis, so I'm used to power steering not working. So I'm just <laughs> <running>. <laughs> I'd be interested to see what some of the guys. You know, you don't really see the last person I remember driving an S2000 and drifting. Like, period. Not even like I'm talking about a grassroots pro was either right. Alex Pfeiffer back in the early, early 2000s 
or Stefan Papadakis, I think, before he became like the team owner that yeah. now has all these drivers. When he was driving Formula D, I think he may have also had an S2000 at one point, if I remember correctly. So were, were either of those guys driving those RSR cars? I think so. I think that was okay. Alex Pfeiffer, if I remember okay. correctly, who was one of my that, favorites as a kid, but I'm just, it's been so long. I, I just remember that team RSR was always super cool when I was younger. And, Bro, and I remember S2000. It was awesome. RSR livery was the absolute jam back then. Oh man. That was like it, the pinnacle. Like, changed everything. The pinnacle. Like, yeah, yeah. It was awesome. I don't even know if RSR fully exists anymore. I saw they still made parts not long ago in Japan, but you never hear about them anymore. And they were like right. one of the brands. HKS, which kind of yeah, same yeah. thing, bro. HKS is still making stuff like Turbo, especially, but like in America, mm-hmm. like nobody really has HKS, like Blow Off House, but like nobody right. else has anything else. Yeah. And it then, was uh, RSR, bro. I, remember, I bought an HKS Blow Off Valve like whenever that was 2013 when I was building this ridiculous KA that I wish I'd never started. Um, just because it was what I saw every day in Super Street, Modified Magazine, all that kind of stuff. It was always RSR, you know, HKS, all that cool stuff. Yeah, it's, it's funny how those brands disappear, especially in America. Yeah, it's, it's funny. like affordable two like, forties. Yeah, <laughs> they're gone. <laughs> yeah, thanks again. We're coming for you, people. Okay. Yeah, yeah, round two. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, anyway, that was like sidetrack, but that's what makes the podcast fun. Uh, but yeah, that's 2000. Okay, man, I can see that. I do want to commend you, by the way. I didn't mention the Miata at all, um, and that is probably uh, stupid on my part because that's probably the most consistent Japanese sport chassis in the last 20 to 30 years. I don't think that anybody can be topped. I mean, they're still around. When people say no <laughs> Japanese manufacturers make a small manual rear-wheel drive car anymore, like, we always conveniently overlook the Miata, which is just mind-blowing. It's a great chassis. Currently, it has about as much horsepower as you would have in an SR240 back in the early 2000s. Anyway, the wheelbase is still really tiny. Yeah. I looked it up the other day just to compare it to, like, the FRS, uh, or excuse me, the GTA 6. Uh, and it's still a lot smaller. So you still have kind of the tiny wheelbase issue with those. But uh, it is definitely, I think, if you can get over that and learn to drive with a tiny wheelbase, I think it is. It's even it's even smaller, if I'm right, than the original 8.6 Corolla, which is also surprising. But Wow. Yeah. I think I'm right on that. Um, I'm not going to okay. do live fact checking right now, but I think so. But uh, <laughs> no, not, not on myself, everyone. That. <laughs> hey, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, man. Like, yeah. I just don't want to have the clicks and the microphone. Right. Um, um, and, and the new Miata is a great looking car. It looks are. so cool. They and are. that, that I think was always a problem with the older or the previous versions of the Miata was that they just didn't have the aggressive sports car look. Um, and I think that's, what's always held the Miata back. Cause they're so much fun to drive. Oh, they're freaking tiny. Yeah. It's awesome. It's, it's seriously like, you know, a lot of people make the joke about it, like, like a go-kart and all that. Miatas really are like go-karts. They're so cool to drive. So much if, fun. If they made legitimate hardtop ones, I'm talking about like the RF that they make currently, which is like a hardtop right. convertible. If they made legitimate hardtops, I would be so much more enthused by them. Uh, but yeah. they continue to make only convertibles. And I get that's like the soul of the Miata. So like I think to Miata people, it's blasphemy to even say not to. Yeah, we just lost viewers, listeners. Probably. But yeah. <laughs> I, think, um, I think that would be more you know again like that would make it a competitor of like the h6 so i would yeah. think that was uh that would be pretty cool at that point but uh don't they yeah. have a t-top option so they have like what they call the rf right now which is a le- oh, legitimate yeah it's a okay. legitimate hard top convertible 
kind of like the S15 okay. Varietta. Okay. So uh, it folds into the trunk. It's cool. I didn't see it on the list for 2021. So I think they may actually even be getting rid of it, which is disappointing. Uh, uh, but it's yeah. still a convertible at its core. You know, you, you can't yeah, get the yeah. full stiffness with a convertible that you can with right. a non-convertible. Right. So um, I always think about that. But here or there, I think that's a great suggestion. I just wanted to commend you on it. Yeah. It's the obvious one that nobody ever realizes is obvious. Yeah, always overlooked in Miata for sure. All right, man. So we talked about Japan versus USA. So we're going to kick that off a little bit for the rest of the podcast. So I don't know, like at first I thought like, hey, we'll split this up like one part of the podcast. And then the second podcast we do on this one will be like kind of street and grassroots. Another one will be pro. It's not like they're kind of so intermingled. I don't think it's super easy to do that. So I think we're going to talk about the pro scene a little bit this episode. And the next episode, I'm going to talk about, um, I'll, I'll talk about uh, how D1 and FD Japan is going a little bit more in detail, kind of like how we cover Formula D USA. Um, but there needs to be, if you're listening to our podcast and you've never watched D1, or at least haven't watched D1 in years, there is a major difference between D1 and Formula D now, especially Formula D USA, but even Formula D Japan. So I'm going to open up and I'm going to talk a little bit about that because this is something I know on the last podcast uh, we touched on briefly and you were kind of also like kind of curious about this. So when it comes, when it comes to D1 GP and Formula D now, Formula D, of course, as you know, and everybody knows, Formula D is still judged, which it got that from D1 GP originally, which used to be judged. Uh, Formula D, you have three judges. They look at things like speed, angle, line, consistency, et cetera, and who did good on the lead and who did good on the follow. And then they take the combination and pick the best or most consistent of the two runs. Okay, so fairly straightforward. If you've watched drifting, you kind of know what to expect. Now, there's some nuances that we're not going to spend 30 minutes covering, like there's zones, like outer zones, inner clipping points, etc. But the gist of it is the most consistent runner that follows the rules wins. Um, so in D1 these days, they got rid of judging. Okay, so that was the thing that uh, is still controversial. They got rid of judging, I want to say, like four or five years ago. And I could be off a year or two there, but I think it was somewhere around then. And uh, when Ki- when Kishi Tsutsuya left D1 for mismanagement, uh, he actually it was it was a lot of controversy. There was some concern that D1's future, or there was concern with D1's future because Kishi actually got pushed out of his own company basically with the uh, other uh, co-founder, kind of I guess CEO of D1 as well for mismanagement. Mismanagement. There was a lot of issues. And when they did that, they kind of wiped judging away. So what they do now is they have something called the DOSS, uh, which is the D1 original scoring system. And the D, the DOSS basically is a GPS unit that goes in the car. You may remember, Ricky, I don't know if you'll remember this, but do you remember back in like the mid-2000s, they came out with the drift box that people would buy for their cars. Uh, you saw it a lot more in like Australia and Europe, Europe, but it would kind of measure kind of like how you were drifting and give you a score based on how you ran no no not not necessarily yeah so it came out back in like the mid 2000s it's basically that but they've adapted it a little bit more fine-tuned so what it does it measures your speed which being a gps is probably the biggest factor to it it also can measure your angle um which there's some controversy with that particular one 
Now, of course, it cannot measure things like how close you are in proximity or if you drop a tire off the track, et cetera. So D1 does have a judge <laughs> or two, depending on the circuit, I believe, that can make calls based on that. So if they want to award, let's say that the, the box scores out of 100 points, okay? Which I, I think is actually more than that, but let's just say it's 100 for, for, uh, for argument's sake. If you score a 99 on your run, according to the drift box, but you dropped a tire, they can reduce points off that by like, you know, two or three points. Yeah. So it won't necessarily like make up a huge deduction, but if it's two close runs, it could, and they can also assign points. So let's say you're the chase driver and you lay down a ridiculously good proximity. They may can add four or five points to that for you noticing that, but relatively speaking, judging is done. It's all judged by this GPS. Now there's controversy with this because the GPS is made to really measure speed. So that's how it actually measures what most people say the most accurately is the speed of the car, which in drifting is not very important. It's more like we see like style, angle, consistency, proximity. Uh, and though it does measure angle and has a way to, there's a lot of controversy with people in, in and around D1 that it's not consistent at measuring angle so that it can make mistakes on that and doesn't judge it correctly. So there's certainly controversy with it. What's your, what's your thoughts on the whole thing? Just curious between judging and that. It just kind of sounds like they've gotten rid of the issue of, of bias or politics in drifting. And now the issue is um, the lack of human uh, error or uh, um, emotion. I mean, I guess not, which is basically bias. I don't, I don't really know how to word that, but it, it's taken away some issues, but it sounds like it could possibly add some as well. So when they're adding points for, like you were saying, style or taking away points for dropping a tire, you're kind of getting right back into the same thing without the machine doing the job for you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if, if you can add points for, for say style, which style is completely up to the individual. Yeah. Yeah. Subjective. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just kind of, it's interesting. I like the idea that you can judge speed. I think speed should be, a little bit more of a judging criteria than it is in drifting, but I don't know. It's, it's definitely an interesting system compared to the things that we see in, in FD USA. So, right. So I agree with what you're saying here. When you have a judge sport, any sport drifting, ice skating, anything that's judged, right? Right. There's always going to be issues with judge sports period. Right when you leave it completely up to a computer and this one always kind of like, it's funny to me because in college football, for example, people used to complain about the BCS. So you can't leave it up to a computer, but now they complain also about the playoffs. But when you leave it up to a computer, there's things that it just can't quite pick up, which I think is why D one also right. has a couple judges, like people that can make small point corrections based on proximity, tire dropping, et cetera. If you were tasked right now, they said, Ricky, we're launching the new, a new pro drifting series. We're going to, where Formula D has announced that they're, they're no longer doing Formula D. D1 announces their closing shop. You're going to be the worldwide biggest pro drifting series. Are you going still straight judging or are you thinking about doing something electronic like the DOS? Just, I know that, that you haven't like, followed uh the japanese pro circuit as much as i have right. so you haven't seen this in action so that that's kind of a loaded question a bit but just from what i've told well, you i 
I like the idea of, of, of getting rid of human bias, which I, I think is some of the biggest issue in um, FD, you, you, you know, former Drift USA. But I, at the same time, I think it is also one of the most important judging criteria is like not, not so much the bias, but human judging is being able to see these little things. And I don't, I mean, can, can a computer judge correction? Like, you know, say how, if, if a car is, if, I mean, if he's further behind, you said it can't judge the proximity, but what about the skill that it takes to catch back up to a lead driver? When, so that, when, when that's where you would behind. rely. Okay. So if I'm arguing for the DAW system, that's where D1, which I think is correct to still have one or two people that can add a few points. I think this is why yeah. I think that's what their job is. So if a car that is much more under power gets gapped, makes a clean get up, even if they sacrifice angle, they can be awarded additional points on that. So I think the only way for me to counter that particular argument would be to say that you would still keep okay. somebody is there that, to make small point corrections. Are, are there lead and chase runs um, of a single individual? Are they added and averaged? For for is is it one number or is the lead a a certain score and then a chase is a certain score and they're two different scores? So so it, it is two different scores, but they do they do end up added together. So if you score a ninety nine on your on your chase and then eighty eight on your lead, they're gonna combine those scores in D one. Okay. And there is occasionally ties, and then okay. when there's ties, okay, I gotta think because last time I saw a tie, I think it was last year. I don't think there's been any this year. Uh, this year has been so weird. I'm trying to recall, but when there's ties, I believe they take the highest lead run is how they decide who wins. They don't, there's no one more okay. times in drifting anymore in, in D1. I think under certain circumstances there is, but in the top like 16, they don't have a top 32. They do a top 16. There is no more like one more times. So wow. you're, you, you get whoever had the highest uh, lead. Okay. I, I think to answer the original question, I, I think I like the idea of both machine and human judging just to make it a little bit more transparent, which I think is the biggest issue in, in FD is that we just don't ever really always know the full truth of, of what the judging is. You know what I mean? There, there's always issues after every event. It's it, We're kind of left here like, okay, we feel like we learned a little bit, but then you see something change next event. And, and then we feel like we're right back where we started. And that's been since, you know, 2004. <laughs> yeah so. that's always been one of my arguments man as you just brought up is like formula d and i said this in the last podcast regarding the von getten jr versus jtp run uh in the finals of round four formula d i think overthinks drifting too much i think they, they've like overthought it to like such a crazy degree that there's these little intricate rules but they take away stuff like Look, man, if somebody is throwing down like an insane run out front and they're offline a little bit, I'm not talking about JTB and Vaughn getting here. There was a lot of offline there. Right. And right. then like the the back car is following like where they're almost tapping door, but they're like little angle. To me, I'd much rather see the stylish car win that. And I think that's where a lot of people had issues with like Osbo in the past, not this year. He's a freaking man on a mission, the Supra. Yeah. But in the past, yeah. people always dissed him. Or like James Dean last year versus Forrest Wang. Dean was nearly like straight. It was almost like he was gripping, but they still continued to like kind of lean towards his side, gave him a one more time, even though Forrest I think should have won on the original one. And then a second one more time, in which of course Dean ended up winning. And he was constantly going straight. Forrest was offline in the final run versus him, but he was undoubtedly throwing down a better drift run. I don't think it's even questionable. I mean, like, his his actual style was so much better. 
So like I do, I, I agree with you as far as like the whole like Formula D having like so many little intricate rules about stuff is like they I think they've almost like overthought the rule book. Yeah. Where D one is a lot more casual still. Yeah. It's yeah. A I'm, more casual. I don't know. I mean, if 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 we could create a a little bit more um I don't know, just just speed and angle, I don't think is enough of a machine judgment to really decide a winner or loser. But like you said, that you can add or take away points and all that. Um, but I just like the idea of telemetry on cars, you know, where you can see live everything. I, I think that should be out there as well, because we always have, I mean, they, they put a third brake light on and now we painted a, a rim on a spoke to, to watch for brake checking and, and all these kind of things. We, we need to, like telemetry on cars to, to fully judge the, the the runs like we're we're judging things like that with a naked eye so i think if we had more transparency with the vehicles the the judging would be a little more honest and um but at the same time we we i don't think we should make it entirely machine based because that takes away the emotion and passion from the sport which is why drifting is so much different than any other motorsport you know I mean, yeah, I, I get it. I think if I was tasked with with making a new series or heading it, I would actually go DOS. And I think even in Japan, it is a very controversial still thing. Uh, I think the biggest controversy, which is something I haven't really covered yet, is that a big argument from a lot of the drivers is that a lot of the drivers have learned to drive to the DOS system. So they know that it judges speed okay, more accurately yeah. and heavily. Yeah, last last podcast, I kind of touched on that. So a lot of drivers have learned they don't have to go as crazy. They don't have to throw down as hard as long as they're going fast and they have a little bit of angle and they stay consistent with it, that the box will award them high scores, even if they're like running away a little bit. Like Formula D, like, like you can't run away from the chase. And D1, like eh. as long as you're like kind of online, they're not as stiff about that. Yeah. They're not going to like ding you for running away. That's just part of it. So like, I think there is an argument for that. And it also, I think undoubtedly has encouraged chase drivers not to drive as close. They don't need to, as, as long as they're consistent and they're tandem with the box scoring, they're going to have a consistently good score. The bonus points for getting close, they may not need that to win or if they do they can get close enough to kind of get a few points. They just don't have to go crazy. Now there's still drivers that drive crazy over there, man. There's still guys yeah. that are on doors, oh, yeah. but I definitely think that does encourage that. I still think I would take it over judging. The controversies and straight judging from the days of D1 to Formula D, it's just too common. It's just yeah. too common. Every year, multiple times. Yeah. And, uh, I, I mean, I all, all, almost every event sometimes is it's very, very common. So I would do the DOS, and then I would have one and maybe two judges. I might consider two judges. I don't think I would have three like we have now, but I might have like one or two judges – one judge that would assign things like proximity and another judge that would be able to assign something like uh, how well you hit the line, for example. So like, they could make, yeah. let's say yeah, like five idea. point or less additions or deductions based on that, but still the nice. box would lead you up to it. Now also in D one different, and this is important as well because it wouldn't work in formula D with the current rules and D one GP. If you spin out, you can continue to go. You just like, you know, put the car back in, in gear, go after that. And the box is going to judge you on the run. So yeah, when you spin out, it's going to stop scoring and it's going to, obviously your speed's not going to match up and stuff. So you're going to lose points, but you don't get a zero if you spin out. 
you mm. might get like a 60 instead of a 90. A Do you agree with that? Of 90. So I tend to say I do side with it, but that's purely because D1 is the first professional drift series. So I feel like they set the standard. So okay. if they think spinning is allowed, I mean, that's the people who really brought pro drifting to the rest of the world. Right. So that's bias on my part is that I trust them because <clears throat> they've done it for so long. So if they think that's acceptable, I'm going to go with yes. Most time, if you spin, you're not going to win anyway. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't right. really change stuff. Yeah, but that that would throw in a curveball where you you could eliminate a one more time run if both drivers spin, which which happens sometimes when when the lead he he finishes his run without a spin, but Chase spins on the first run and then they they flip the next time he could spin as well and still now that Chase driver has a chance to win again without necessarily getting a complete zero. So exactly that that that's a pretty cool curveball there. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. And, you know, like in Japan, the tracks are much different. Again, we've talked about this prior as well, right. but there's sections of certain track layouts where, you know, drivers might do two corners and then grip up for a straightaway before they go into like corner three. And like Formula D, right. they expect you to link the whole course. So there's still a lot of differences, you know, between between those two things in general, um, besides just judging and the DOS. But because the DOS is so controversial, I thought that's why I wanted to kind of take the conversation and kind of get your thoughts on that. Because it, I think in America, for people that don't watch D1, and since it hasn't come to the States now for well over a decade, I think there's a lot of people here who are not familiar with D1. So they would be like so shocked at seeing that. You know, yeah. like what in the world? Like how are you not judging drifting? Uh, but D1 has found a way not to. And I think it's actually been fairly successful. There's faults, but I think it's been fairly successful. Yeah. So if you think about like just Japanese drifting in general, okay. So let's go back to like the roots of drifting. So starting with like plus B and the seventies from Kichi Jitsia, his first video. Then of course the eighties and nineties, which is where you and I are both influenced by drifting is like that particular scene. What has been the most influential thing about Japanese drifting or the grassroots, the original grassroots of drifting to like that got you into drifting or kept you into drifting? Like if you had to pick one thing that caught you and has kept you hooked that originated back in that scene, what would it be? The the specific piece of media that that sunk the hook in, is that what you're asking me? <laughs> anything. It can be media or anything. Okay. Per, certain I, styles, I, I, certain people. Um there was a video that came out with and and I, I don't know the drivers and, and all the details of the video, but it's on a uh, it, it's in Japan somewhere on a some some mountain pass with the red fd or um fc's actually sorry and and a white one and and they're tandeming down this mountain with you know the one i'm talking about. i know Everybody's the exact video you're talking about yeah man i remember the first time i saw that it just it, it was over that was just some of the coolest driving and like film editing which which i I think we all kind of like a lot of too, like really cool drift film edit film editing is, is something that attracts us a lot. I think, and it, it was just so just like basic and raw and the cars look stock. Just, I, I, I think they were turbo models, both of them. And I, I like that a lot too. Cause that's when I, I think when I saw this, I was, I still had a stock S 13. So that like inspired me that I could do it. You know um, that, that specifically was super cool. I mean, that, that video is just so awesome. 
Yeah, it's definitely. I can think of it now. I haven't seen it probably yeah. since Streetfire.net days before YouTube. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Streetfire. If if you're listening, you don't know what Streetfire was. Streetfire.net was a place people would upload car videos, uh, and it was pre-YouTube, so it was pretty much like YouTube, but just for car stuff. Uh, and when YouTube yeah. came along, it ended up kind of killing Streetfire and other things, but. I remember that specific video from back then, or even maybe just downloaded from like drifting.com and then pop them up in a media player. But <laughs> definitely like one of those two places. I remember seeing that yeah. video and uh, you're right, man. It's, it's such an iconic video for people that got into drifting in like the early two thousands or late nineties. I don't think you can yeah. actually like unsee it. Yeah. It, it had like a production quality to it for like an illegal downhill run. Like it was just so cool. Yeah, man. I uh, I think that's that's a great answer. It was like way more specific than you had to be, but it's so like it puts anybody that was back there in that time. <laughs> I think like we can yeah. all relate with that one. Well, wow. so after I, I'm, you, I I have a great second I would like to bring up. Like, go, go no, go ahead. for it. Go for it. Uh, yeah, well, it's it, it's a similar video with a uh, Kichi in the in the eight six with the in car cam where it kind of looks like he just taped a VHS recorder <laughs> on like a roll bar in the back. And it's just him going down the mountain. And it's a very similar video, just real raw uncut with a couple of guys at a couple of corners filming. Um, and just, I like the old school stuff with, you know, when they're driving the car so hard, so much footwork, so much hands. Like I like that stuff. That That's why those two videos just imprinted on me. So I'm going to stay with media because I think that we can actually adapt this question. Like I think in a future podcast, we can get into a little bit like what driver influenced you, but let, let's stay there. So, okay. so you answered the question that I originally asked was kind of open-ended with media. So I'm gonna try to stay with media for me. Uh, I'm gonna give a generic response that most people did, but then I'm also going to say why it's a little bit different for me. I, so first for me, I was first introduced into drifting. I talked in the first podcast that I got into 240 SXs or S chassis when I was about nine or 10 because my sister had a 92 hatch. It was a white uh, RPS 13. It was an LE model. And I liked that car a lot. So I wanted to own one when I got older. At the time, I liked Civics. I was into cars when I was like eight or nine. Uh, my dad was into cars and did racing, had Datsun and Roadsters. Uh, and I got into cars and I was into like civics. Mostly. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Can, can I stop you real quick? Yeah. Did, did you say civics? I, it, it was a dark did, time. Did, despite the flame that I got in this yeah. episode for my prelude comment. Ch children are dumb. That's all okay. I got to say. And I was a child at the time. I had Excuse no me. taste. I'm very glad I didn't get a civic. Carry on. Sorry. I interrupted <laughs> you. So. <laughs> around nine or ten my sister had the uh the 240sx i started to like that car as well as well as civics and then i would get into like the street racing uh magazines back then so you remember stuff like super street oh yeah, um, yeah. and there was so many others super streets just one performance auto sound etc etc yeah. i mean there was probably at the time like seven or eight different tuner quote-unquote magazines and i remember getting really exposed to drifting through there i cannot even tell you which magazine it was but specifically, I was in a Publix grocery store and I was like 12. Okay. And there was a guy that worked there and he had a turbo Volkswagen, but he knew I was in a car. So he'd always kind of talk to me even though I was a kid. He was like probably 18 at the time. I think his name was Andrew. And he would always talk to me about cars. And I showed him, I was like, hey, man, this is this a four door skyline. That's kind of cool. And it was at the time, I didn't know it, but it was at the time Kendamura. It was, it was actually 
D1 in Japan that the magazine had went and watched and shot. So it was Nomakin driving the four-door Skyline out. And what I said was, I think four-door Skylines look so stupid. And he was like, no, man, that thing's sick. But that was like one of my first, like one of my first at least memorable major exposures to drifting. And then I used to go to Radio Shack and buy RC cars. And they had a run of initial DRC cars and they would sell them with the initial D comic books next to them on the rack. And so when I was like yeah. 12 or 13 around the same time, I bought my first edition of initial D. So I was going to say that's the generic one that a lot of people would say like, Oh, initial D. Yeah. Right. But for me, I only really read like one of the graphic novels. It was just the yeah. fact that it exposed me more into drifting as like a, <clears throat> you know, 11 or 12 year old or whatever. And yeah. it hooked me. So I always will give it credit for that. Very cool. Do you still have the RC cars? I actually do. So um, my I, my toddler found the little Zip Zap ones I'm talking about. Not even the X mods. Yeah. I had both. Okay. Zip Zaps came first. They were little tiny. That's the ones I sold with Initial D. And she found that the other day and loved it. Now, the battery stays charged for about 20 seconds at a time because it's so old. <laughs> but she thinks it's like the coolest thing. So I actually do. Nice. Relic. Yeah, man. Rest yeah. in peace, Radio Shack. Yeah, <laughs> big time. X mods, you you. That that's a big one, dude. Yep, I used to drift <laughs> yeah. my X mods, man. Yeah, <laughs> I've got a mini Z. I've got a mini Z for what it's worth. It's like the reincarnation, kind of, but not really, of X mod. You know, one twenty four scale oh, yes, RC car, dude. Yeah. Minis, yeah, absolutely. I yeah, know yeah. Those. yeah, yeah. I've got a one eighty, a one eighty SX uh, mini Z, dude. You're gonna make so me it's pretty cool. I think weren't min- actually. I thought that minis were around first, weren't they? Around first in Japan, and then X mods was actually kind of a copy of them. It could be. I don't know. I, I think so, I found man. it somewhat recently. I found it. Okay. I, I could be wrong, but I'm like pretty sure that they were actually X mods inspiration. Like that was what they made X mod after in Japan. They used to have those. Nice. Okay. And you remember, dude, back then. So you'll remember this then, like the Yo- the Yokohama, the Yokomo RC. I can't remember yeah, what yeah. brand it was. That like yeah. everybody in Japan had those like little RC drift oh, yeah. cars, and in America we want yeah. them so freaking bad, dude. I don't think there was a so solid and, and we got a bunch of knockoff ones, and they were just like so trashy. Dude, I remember wanting those so bad, and you could not find those at hobby shops in the United no, States, at no. least not in our region. Like maybe no. maybe in other places, but they were so cool. I, I remember exactly what you're talking about. They still make them, bro. Every like every year or two, I flirt with buying one, but they're like three hundred and four hundred dollars now. Oh, I know. Freaking nuts. It's tough because you're just gonna beat it up. I, I flirt with it all the time, bro. I mean, it's gonna happen. I've been flirting with that thing for like fifteen years, uh, but just do it. Yeah, it's. <laughs> but it's like just I can actually it. spend that three to four hundred on my car, or I can spend <laughs> it on RC cars. So it's always like one of those balancing acts, man. Like. This is what I do. I'm always like, well, the car's not going anywhere. So if I re, you know, like redivert the the budget here, I can always fall back on the car. There. <laughs> do it. Do it. Yeah, it might it might happen soon. I got to get through Christmas, children. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know, say it's for them, and then when they lose interest, just take it. <laughs> that's, that's that's I'd never ever do that, bro. Never ever ever. <laughs> Uh, we grew up in different households, man. I don't know. Yeah, no. <laughs> I do no, that all the kidding. time, man. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna get this for my child, but so I can get enjoyment out of it as well. Like, yeah. But I have to pretend yeah, like yeah. I'm an adult. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> oh man. 
All right, dude. So that was actually an extremely fun conversation. So we're going to do, yeah. I mean, it's already been an hour. We're pretty much at our, at our end of I our know podcast. It. I know it. That's a so. bummer. Cause I have so much more old school media we could talk about and just like the, uh, the memories just overflow. Dude. It's okay. No, In keep, whole, you know. keep it. Like, yeah. I, I think without a doubt, that's going to open us into a podcast where I think we should like be like drift historians. We have have enough experience in drifting between you and nice. I that we I can so. bring up some freaking awesome stuff share some links in the social media for some of these old videos people probably hadn't seen. Yeah. And I think we can do a whole podcast on some of that stuff, including this book behind me that you pointed out. I'd mentioned that earlier. The only hardback drifting book I think ever made. Nice. And uh, we will talk about all kinds of cool stuff. I think it's a good idea for a future podcast. That's, that's material for like two podcasts even. (laughs) Maybe we can revisit in Japan part two. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So listeners, thank you again for tuning into our third episode. Uh, you probably noticed at the front, I want to make a slight footnote here at the end. You probably noticed at the front of the podcast that we no longer call it the monthly e-break. Uh, it's not really a long story, but without getting too wordy, uh, there was another person started a podcast around the same time we did and they had the same name. And uh, even though I think I had the idea long before they did, um they published their first podcast uh before we did so to be fair uh, not that it was an issue they didn't like contact me about anything like that but i think it was only fair for us to make the move into something different battle damage also kind of has that like 90s drift like, yeah kind of ring to it you know people always yeah. say battle scars battle damage uh so i think it kind of works for our particular style anyway when it comes to drifting works for me which is really all i'm concerned about Sounds good. <laughs> Your opinion was so important to me that I changed it prior to me telling you, but, but <laughs> I wrote yeah. Ricky and I was like executive decision, like no vote. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was only because I, I was setting up. Too. No, no, dude. It wasn't that I actually didn't care. <laughs> I want to, I want to be, I want to be specific. I, I, I want to be, I want to be like forthcoming. I did. It's not that I didn't care. It was, um, I was actually making some of the podcast pages for some of the other services. We're now on six services. I do want to point that out. So I was making some of the podcast (laughs) pages. And before I was like, I was doing it right then doing the editing. And I was like, all right, dude, before I get too deep and setting these all up for the old name, if I'm going to switch names, I got to do it now. So I started throwing logos together and stuff. And then before I know it, I had it. And I was like, I'm too far down the rabbit hole to go back. So this is what we're going with. I'm going to tell Ricky that we made the change. And if he <laughs> yeah. hates it, then he can be like, I'm leaving and starting my own podcast and screw you. Uh, uh, but I don't think, I wouldn't know I didn't how. think you would. <laughs> no, <we're, laughs> no, I love it. It's cool. All right, man. Sounds good, Ricky. All right. Yeah. So uh, thank you again, guys, for listening. Again, it's our third episode. And we thank you so much. Make sure to follow us. We have a Facebook page. It's a, a Battle Damage Podcast. And we also have a Twitter at Battle Damage Pod. So uh, you can find us at either one of those. Uh, send us a question through them. And of course, we're through Anchor FM. We want to thank Anchor FM for allowing us to host our podcast for free and distribute it to all kinds of amazing platforms like Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, et cetera. We're on several now and we are trying to get an iTunes podcast. So hopefully we'll have some news there soon. Thank you so much for tuning in again. And until next time, have a good week. <laughs>